Welcome to Felony Friday, a presentation of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, John Odermatt. Felons, friends, and freedom lovers, this is Felony Friday, a weekly show on the Lions of Liberty podcast. Of course, Felony Friday is the show that focuses each and every week on exposing injustice in the broken criminal justice system. And boy, I have one heck of a show lined up for you guys today. This week, I had the pleasure of interviewing attorney and author Harvey Silverglate. Now, this episode is a little bit longer. I got to speak with Harvey for roughly an hour. So I want to get to this interview pretty quickly. The show notes page for this episode can be found at lionsofliberty.com FF66. Of course, on that show notes page, you'll be able to find detailed notes about everything that Harvey and I discussed. But maybe more importantly, you'll be able to find a link to purchase Harvey's book, Three Felonies a Day. Now, I highly recommend buying this book. I've read several parts of this book, several chapters of this book, multiple times. It is a real asset to have in your library. Let's get rolling with today's show. Harvey Silverglade, a graduate of Harvard Law School, has been an advocate for civil liberties since the 1960s. He's an attorney, writer, and nonprofit activist. Silverglade currently practices law with the Boston firm Zalkine, Duncan, and Bernstein. Silverglade specializes in criminal defense, civil liberties, academic freedom, and student right cases. In addition to his legal work, Silverglade has had a successful writing career as a newspaper columnist, book author. He's the co-founder also of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. This is a nonprofit 501c3 foundation dedicated to preserving and enlarging academic freedom, due process, and freedom of speech on American college campuses. His bombshell book, which we'll be spending most of today's show talking about, Three Felonies a Day, How the Feds Target the Innocent. Harvey, welcome to Felony Friday. Well, it's good to be here. Well, it's it's an honor to have you here, Harvey, and I first really heard of your work. Actually, at the onset of this show, one of the first people I interviewed was Joseph Valero Jr., and in preparing for that interview, I listened to, to your interview with him, and soon after that, I, I purchased your book and, and became a fan right away, so I'm really excited about diving in and talking about some of these uh, particular cases that I think are going to be of interest to my audience today. But before I do that, I just want to kind of ask you a broad question. I, I know you know your your bio, your, your history. Um, throughout your life, you've been a passionate defender of civil liberties. And I just wanted to ask you from, from your perspective, in your lifetime, over the course of your work in the legal field, have you seen an expansion in individual liberty, do you think, or do you think that the government has is, uh, is, is really intervening more in individual liberty? Have you seen a contraction in our rights? Well, I think that I have seen uh, a, uh, an enlargement of certain, like First Amendment rights, um, <clears throat> a refinement of some due process rights. But by and large, what I have seen is a continuing tension between the, what I now think are the uh, ever-present desires of government to control more and more uh, areas of American life uh, and the attempts by the civil libertarians and others within the population to try to fight back and restrict uh, 
um, those efforts. I think that the battle is never ending. Um, the struggle for freedom is never ending. Uh, and it's just something that has to be assumed by generation after generation. Uh, for example, um, <clears throat> Alan Charles Quarles and I co-founded the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, FIRE, in uh, 1999, because after the publication of our 1998 book, The Shadow University, The Betrayal of Liberty on America's Campuses, we started to get hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of uh, calls and letters from students and even faculty members whose liberties were being infringed and academic freedom was being infringed uh, on college campuses. We couldn't handle them all, so we started FIRE. I was sure that the situation on the campuses, the restrictions of rights on the campuses, the idiocy of the takeover by bureaucrats uh, over professors on the campuses was so dysfunctional and so absurd that surely fire would not have to be in existence more than 10 years before this problem was solved. And so I sort of planned my life on the assumption that I would have to spend a considerable amount of time fire for 10 years, but then I'd be able to take that time and devote it again to my law practice and to other things that I do. Uh, and lo and behold, the 10-year point came and went, and the situation on the campuses, despite all our efforts, had actually gotten worse. The number of bureaucrats had mushroomed. The imposition on free speech and other student activities and rights had increased. And... Um, its fire is now in, I think, its 17th year and uh, an end nowhere in sight. So that really confirmed what I should have realized, and that is the fight for liberty is never ending. Uh, it's never won uh, with any finality, and you just have to keep vigilant and uh, keep fighting. Yes, Harvey, indeed, the fight is never ending and I'm assuming that's one of the reasons why you wrote this book, this book, Three Felonies a Day, How the Feds Target the Innocent. And I want to talk about a couple cases in this book, a couple different instances um, throughout the book that I think are going to be of great interest to my audience. And the first case, I think it'll be of great interest to libertarians everywhere because it deals with a guy who... I sort of become a notorious character in the libertarian movement, in the libertarian party with this past election in 2016. And that is, of course, libertarian vice pres presidential candidate William Weld, known as Bill Weld, this election cycle. Yep. And in your book, in chapter one, I think it is one of the maybe the second or third story in that chapter. And I, first of all, the, the way that your book is laid out, talking about different different segments, I'm going through tales of really um, prosecutors and um, U.S. attorneys who, who are going over line, pushing it, and then moving into the medical field and on from there. It's, it's organized in a nice way that it's easy to jump around and you can read about what you want to. So I wanted to point that out. But to get back to this Bill Weld case, I wanted to ask you, you know, a lot of people, or at least myself, I wasn't familiar that Ronald Reagan had appointed 
Bill Weld as a U.S. attorney for Massachusetts. I knew that that he was a U.S. attorney, but I didn't realize this happened way back in 1981. So the one case you talk about, it's it's so interesting. And I was wondering if you could if you could talk a little bit about your you had a client in this case, Theodore Anzalone. And he was really a victim of Weld's attempt to sort of manufacture some corruption as as uh, Weld had a had a mind to take out the mayor to, to further his own political agenda. So could, could you share a little bit about that case and your involvement? Yeah, first of all, I should say that by and large, I like Bill Weld and I've always liked Bill Weld. The fact that I'm critical of uh, his office and his handling of some of the cases when he was the United States attorney is more an indictment of the structure of federal prosecutions and federal law. It is, you know, the old saying, uh, a prosecutor can indict a ham sandwich. Well, it's true, particularly in federal law, because it's so vague and so broad and so amorphous that you can go through the daily activities of any citizen or non-citizen and you can find some arguable violation of some federal criminal statute. And that dangerous situation pertains whether the Democrats or the Republicans are in charge or even when somebody with libertarian leanings, which Weld has and has always had, uh, is in charge. So there is never a respite from the federal prosecution machine, and we should never assume that the right person gets an office, we're safe. We're not safe until the laws are changed. So Weld, when he became U.S. attorney, he was obviously quite ambitious. I think everybody who knew him and I did know him, I still know him, um, felt that he was uh, aiming for either a high federal office uh, or uh, for the governorship. And um, so he was ambitious. And he had a first assistant, a fellow named Mark Wolf, who came out of the Department of Justice uh, with a high position during the Ford administration. And uh, he was known to be ambitious. He ended up on the federal bench. Uh, and um, so uh, we um, we happened to have, we being my law partner at the time, Nancy Gertner, who herself ended up on the federal bench. We had a client, Theodore Anzalone, who was being pressured by Weld to become a witness against his friend, uh, Kevin White, the longtime mayor of Boston. White himself had ambitions to become president of the United States. So uh, in order to try to indict the mayor, White, Weld and Wolf decided they really had to climb the ladder. That is to say, they had to find somebody who had contact, frequent contact with the mayor, who could testify to the mayor's assumed corrupt activities. And they picked Anzalone, who was a major fundraiser and political confidant of Kevin White. In order to try to get Anzalone to cooperate, they had to get him convicted of something. Their assumption was that, of course, if they look closely enough, they could find something on Anzalone. And they found a lower level corrupt 
uh, individual in the uh, in the administration of the city of Boston, a fellow named George Kalados, who was willing to basically say whatever they wanted him to say uh, in order for Kalados to get out of a beef that he got into because of some bribe-taking activities on his part. And they made a deal with Kalados that they would give him a free pass on any other legal problems he had if he could deliver uh, Ted Anzalone to the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office. And Kalados proceeded to do just that with a story uh, about, uh, supposedly, uh, Theodore Anzalone hitting up a contractor for several thousand dollar campaign contribution to the Kevin White campaign. Uh, And uh, if the contractor came up with the contribution, the contractor would get work for the city. And um, that is what uh, Kalados told the U.S. attorney he would testify to in a corruption trial. And on the basis of the word of George Kalados, Weld and Wolf indicted Anzalone for bribery and extortion. After Anzalone is is indicted, then, then they have him where they want him. What happened... Can you tell that the story where Kalados, where he arranges a meeting in a coffee shop? Oh, is, is that this, so this story? Can you share that? So, of course, uh, Weld uh, and, and Wolf were actually surprised that rather than simply collapse and make a deal with them, where, whereby uh, Anzalone would become a government witness against Kevin White, instead, Anzalone, who's a loyal kind of soul, and I might also say, it turns out, honest. Uh, he decided he was going to go to trial and fight the charges. And we were getting ready, we being my then-law partner, Nancy Gertner, we were getting ready for the trial. And one day, I'm sitting in the office, which was not very far, by the way, from where Anzalone lived and worked. And he came running over to me to say that the most amazing thing had just happened. He had gotten a contact from Kalados, and Kalados said to Anzalone that if Anzalone pays him a large amount of money, or if Kevin White paid him a large amount of money, several hundred thousand dollars, which was real money in those days, uh, he would change his testimony so that his testimony would not incriminate Kevin White. And Anzalone came, said he would have to think about it. And Anzalone came running to me and said, oh, my Lord, this crook actually is holding me up in order to basically tell the truth. Because Anzalone assured me he had never extorted any contractor to turn over thousands of dollars to the Kevin White campaign in exchange for work for the city. And Anzalone says, what do I do? So I gave Anzalone instructions to set up a lunch meeting with Kalados and to do it at a local bar and grill where Anzalone and I both knew the owner. 
And I went over to the owner and asked if we could set up a scenario where Anzalone and Kaleidos would be having lunch at the bar and grill, but that underneath a trap door, a trap door located under the table where Anzalone would maneuver himself and Kaleidos, there would be a court stenographer I would hire and two witnesses to testify, to listen in and then to testify as to the conversation between Anzalone and the government's chief witness, really the only witness, uh, against uh, Anzalone at Anzalone's upcoming extortion trial. The deal was arranged. The scenario was arranged. Um, I said, showed up ahead of time, set up the two witnesses. The stenographer showed up. But she was so freaked out, she didn't realize that she was going to be in a basement under a trap door in a seedy bar and grill. She got scared and left. But I still have my two witnesses. One of them was my paralegal, and one of them was a former federal prosecutor whose credibility was very high. And we went forward with the scenario. And uh, sure enough, uh, my witnesses listened in and heard and were prepared to testify that Coledo said to Anzalone that if the mayor would provide him with several hundred thousand dollars, he would change his testimony. And he made it clear he would tell the truth. In other words, he had made a deal with the government to tell a lie. But if he got a couple hundred grand, he would come clean and point out that the extortion plot that he was talking about was completely his idea. He was undertaking it. He was going to keep the money. They had nothing to do with Kevin White. And Anzalone said, all right, he was going to think about it. He was inclined to do it. He was going to think about it. And he said, by the way, how is this couple hundred thousand dollars supposed to come from Kevin White to you, uh, Mr. Kaleidos? And Kaleidos says, oh, that's easy, he said. I'll sell the a mayor, an old nag of a racehorse that's long retired, that's worthless, I'll sell it to him for $200,000. So there's at least the legitimate transaction on the books that I sold a racehorse to the mayor for two hundred grand. Okay. Anyway, the trial begins, and the prosecution puts on various preliminary witnesses, and then they get to their main witness, George Kaleidos. And they go through the direct examination. The prosecutor uh, asks Kaleidos to tell very, the story about the corruption in the White administration and how they hit up a contractor for a cash payment uh, in order to get a city contract, blah, 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 blah. And then we get up, and it was my law partner who we decided would do the uh, cross-examination of Kaleidos. We felt that uh, it was better to have it done by a uh, harmless-seeming woman. At the time, there were very few women trial lawyers and criminal defense trial lawyers in Boston. So my partner gets up and starts to ask questions and asks about a particular meeting at this particular bar and grill on a particular day. You can see that the prosecutor's ears started to perk up. What's this all about? Well, they found out pretty soon, and we 
They called a conference up at the bench and complained to the judge that we hadn't given them advance notice about this. And we said, well, of course not, because you would have told Kaledis about it and he would have changed his testimony. In order to get this guy to tell the truth, you actually had to trick him into telling the, uh, the, the truth at the trial. And um, we said that we had two witnesses prepared to testify who had overheard the conversation and they would testify that Kaledis actually was extorting the mayor rather than uh, testifying truthfully that the mayor had extorted via Anzalone had extorted campaign contributions. Well, the bottom line was uh, we continued the trial and the jury acquitted uh, Anzalone rather quickly. The deliberations didn't take too long. So that was the my my um, uh, my most notorious legal contact with Bill Weld, although I I had been on speaking terms with him ever since uh, and before. Uh, I say I, I, I've known him for just about his whole political life. I like him. I think he's honest. But uh, I think he learned a lesson about believing these witnesses who the feds give deals to. Uh, in, in, in Alan Dershowitz's immortal phrase, they give them these deals in order to get them not only to sing, but also to compose. And Kaleidos really composed. Yeah, that really is an incredible story. Um, just you know, just reading it, you you can imagine, you could just picture these people beneath in this basement, below this trapdoor, listening to this conversation. Really, that would make a great a great scene in a movie. Um, just just well, absolutely uh, amazing. You know, a lot of these cases in in the three felonies a day would make great movies. Um, a lot of the participants, who, only about. I'd say half of them were my clients. I made sure that I didn't use only my clients' cases because I wanted the reader to understand this is a general problem <clears throat> and not limited to my law practice. Um, and all of these cases, or at least the vast majority of them, have movie potential. And part of the reason they have movie potential is most people don't realize that this is how the federal criminal justice system operates, with witnesses pressured, bribed, uh, and, and, and threatened in order to tell a story that will convict somebody, even though the prosecutors surely have to know that a lot of these stories are not true. But they give the deals to the witnesses so that the witnesses really think they have no choice but to both sing and compose. And that's almost uh, that's exactly what happened in this next case I wanted to talk about um, in your chapter two of your book, Giving Doctors Orders, a doctor by the name of William Hurwitz. And he was a nationally known pain specialist. And prosecutors were claiming at the time that there was a conspiracy of silence and there, um, I guess he had 15 patients out of 500 that were taking taking the pain medication that that he was uh, that he was providing them, and they were they were going and selling it. And I think you wrote in the book that the, the feds got on to these 15 people selling it, and then were able to use them as witnesses in order to prosecute this doctor. So how did this story how did the story roll out? How, how did Her Hurwitz 
get embroiled in this mess? Was it just as simple as people that he was prescribing drugs to were just dirty people and it ended up coming back to get him? Well, the um, the trajectory of how the feds came to prosecute what I consider to be a hero of the medical profession, Dr. Hurwitz, uh, the trajectory is very much like it was in the uh, prosecution of the attempted uh, the attempt to get a, an indictment against the mayor of Boston, Kevin White, and how they used uh, Anzalone uh, as a vehicle to try to get to White and how they used Kaleidos as a vehicle to try to break down uh, Anzalone's resistance to being a witness. It's very much the same. They went to Dr. Hurwitz's patients. These patients were opiate addicts. And they threatened to prosecute the patients unless the patients could help them get Dr. Hurwitz. And when a heroin addict was faced with the choice, am I going to go down in a federal uh, charge for possession and use of prohibited narcotics, or am I going to hand them the doctor? It wasn't a close call, and their testimony had nothing to do with the truth. The, the real tragedy of the case is that surely the prosecutors realized that the patients were not necessarily or even likely telling the truth, that the patients were simply saving their own skins by giving up the doctor. But this is how federal prosecutions proceed. This is how prosecutors make their reputations. And when they're done in the Department of Justice, they go out to Wall Street and they get several million dollars a year starting salary as a partner in a white shoe law firm. This is how this corrupt system operates and has always operated apparently, or certainly has operated since the high tide of federal vague statutes uh, came into uh, existence in the mid-1980s. And um, in the Hurwitz case, uh, Hurwitz had expert witnesses to testify, and expert witnesses in the medical profession, to testify that the way he dealt with his addict clients was pretty much the way the medical profession advised doctors to deal with such clients clients, such patients, Um, and he did the best he could, even though he recognized then and recognized now that a few of the patients were obviously lying to him and were getting more narcotics than he should have given them, than than they needed, because they resold some of the narcotics in order to make make a living. These were people who were so sick they couldn't really work. And so Hurwitz ended up, despite the fact that he was a compassionate and skilled physician who dealt with patients who were in, in pain and needed pain-killing medications, he ended up indicted. Uh, this is an old story. It's one of the um, most uh, vulnerable areas in the practice of medicine where you have to administer narcotics for patients in extreme pain. And any doctor who practices in this field, in my view, is a hero. And what's happened lately is that doctors have been very reluctant to 
treat patients who are in extreme pain and very reluctant to give them adequate amounts of narcotic drugs in order to really ease their suffering. And so a lot of people, because of the pressure from the feds on the doctors, a lot of patients end up in unnecessary pain. And in my view, this pain is inflicted by the federal narcotics agents uh, who are overzealous in their pursuit of members of the medical profession. And and on top of that, you know, they're they're not um, their actions are not allowing these people to get the pain medication they need with the drug war. The the menu of options is restricted in many cases. Of course, that's changing a little bit with we're getting medical mar- marijuana in many states, but still that's, you know, it's not available for every type of, of illness or, or, or pain or disease that, that it's needed for. So more progress needs to be made there, and, and hopefully it, it will be. I did want to talk to you uh, next about, you know, this is a, a subject that I think everyone understands uh, the government is, is known for. The government is always going after people's money. They're always going after seemingly successful people and trying to bring them down, if for no other reason than, I, I don't know why, to, just to knock them down a peg. Um, because it looks like an easy win. Because if somebody's making a lot of money, they must be doing something wrong. And the case I wanted to talk about first is one of one of your clients as well, Michael Milliken. This was back in, I believe, the early 90s. Uh, Milliken was a billionaire investor, made just incredible amounts of money. You cite the figures in your book, uh, tens, hundreds of millions of dollars. He was a billionaire. Um, can you share... And you did mention in your book too that this case specifically sort of sort of eats at you. I forget I forget how you phrased it, but you still think about it. So can you share why you think the feds targeted Michael Milliken here and why this case still kind of eats away at you a little bit? Okay, first of all, um, the, um, the 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 justification, the reason why feds go after people like Michael Milken uh, is, partly careerist. That is to say, they get a lot of publicity. This case was um, accompanied by a huge amount of publicity over uh, several years. And these prosecutors, when they're done uh, getting a conviction and putting a rich and famous uh, person into prison, they are viewed by the rest of the country as being genius lawyers, as if it takes a genius to win a case where nobody can even understand what the statute means. And uh, they then get offers for partnerships uh, starting at millions of dollars a year uh, at Wall Street law firms. So there is a substantial uh, reason why prosecutors do this, in addition to simply feeding their own egos, they also get job professional advancement. And in the Milken case, he was the the most famous investor and the most successful investor of his era. Uh, he was a genius. I think anybody who has studied his career agrees that he was a genius. Uh, He was able to finance startup companies, small companies that desperately needed investor money in order to 
in order to make it big with some idea that they had, some new idea, they only needed the financing. They couldn't get it from banks and from brokerage houses, you know, the usual sources of money, um, because what they were doing was seen as too risky. And Michael had a whole network of investors who were prepared on Michael Milken's suggestion to invest in some of these small startup companies because they had a very good idea. And Michael Milken specialized in financing and getting financing for these risky ventures, which paid very high returns to the investors because of the risk they were taking. And by and large, he was very successful. He started some very successful companies on the road. And Milken had a very high profile in the investment industry because the traditional Wall Street firms were really upset at him because he was taking away so much business from them. And the prosecutors stepped into this situation because there was an opportunity for them to make their reputations. And that's how Milken got targeted in a prosecution, which I can tell you, having studied it very carefully, and I'm not the only one, a few securities people and a few reporters, uh, Gordon Krovitz of the Wall Street Journal was one of the first reporters who stepped into the massive publicity when Milken was indicted and said, hey, wait a minute, you know, I've looked at some of the deals that were indicted. I don't understand where the crime is. So some people did understand there was really something wrong, but the judge didn't, at least not at the beginning. So Milken had already uh, ended up pleading guilty to a half dozen charges. Uh, when I, Alan Dershowitz and I worked together on it, when we learned about the case and Milken asked us to look it over to see whether there was anything wrong, he had gotten sentenced to 10 years, a huge sentence uh, on a on a deal where he had agreed to plead guilty. Why are you going to ask me, your listeners are going to ask me, did he uh, agree to a plead guilty? And here is the very uncomfortable but absolutely true answer. Included in the indictment of Michael Milken was a second defendant, Lowell Milken, Michael's kid brother. And this was an absolutely disgusting, in my view, and that's, I think, an understatement, a disgusting tactic that they used in order to get Michael to agree to plead guilty, because I think they knew that if they pursued a trial, they were very likely to lose because Milken had very good lawyers. And so what they did was they made a deal. They would dismiss the charges against the kid brother if the older brother would plead guilty. Milken was a well-known family man, extraordinarily devoted to his family, and he agreed to that deal. I call it, it's not practicing law, it's hostage-taking. They took- right, and, and with that deal, there was no guarantee on, on the sentence, right? So There was no guarantee he, on the sentence. Why would he accept that deal? And uh, Milken's lawyers figured you know, at most he would get a couple of years, 
And the judge, who was, it was her first case, her first criminal case. She didn't really understand what was going on. She gave him 10 years. At that point, Milken hired Dershowitz and me. And by the way, I'm able to talk about this because I've gotten permission from Milken to write about it in the book. Hired Dershowitz and me to look this over to see whether anything could be done either to lower the sentence or to vacate his guilty plea. Dershowitz and I look at this and say, you know, Michael, you didn't commit a crime. And we'd like to attack this on the ground that you didn't commit a Well, he preferred in the end a less confrontational approach. We made a motion to reduce the sentence. And in the course of arguing for the reduced sentence, started to educate the judge to the fact that this indictment did not involve a real crime. And the judge finally got it and reduced the sentence and let him out. Uh, So he only ended up serving a couple years after all. Now, when I say only, that's a long sentence for an innocent man, a couple of years. But at least we got him out. A couple of years for, for, as you said, a a non-crime. For a non-crime. But let me just tell you something else that happened just about the time Michael got out. Right after he got out, a co-defendant of his was prosecuted in the same court, but different judge was prosecuted for one of the deals to which, remember I said he had pleaded guilty to six deals. One of those deals, a co-defendant was prosecuted. That co-defendant went ahead and went to trial. The government put in its evidence, and at the close of the prosecution's case, before the defendant even was required to then come forth with his defense, the judge says, you know, I've heard about all the testimony by the government witnesses. I've heard their arguments. I have to tell you, there was no crime here. This was a perfectly lawful securities transaction. I'm declaring the the defendant innocent and I'm throwing out the charge. And that was one of the counts on which Milken had pleaded guilty. Uh, So it's not just me saying there was no crime. When the judge who was experienced finally looked at this case, he made drew the same conclusion. So these, um, the, the, the case of Milken always stuck in my craw for a lot of reasons, but the main reason, the use of the younger brother as a hostage, I thought that was such a low blow that if I had the power to do it, I would have indicted the prosecutors for hostage taking, for extortion, essentially for blackmailing uh, Michael Milken. I thought it was such a low blow low blow yeah it was it was essentially a shakedown and uh i want to talk about this this next case i think it's gonna be the last one we have time for and on this show uh felony friday we we play a little game from time to time called is this a crime and should anyone do time is it a crime should they do time or do you think they learned a lesson from a hefty fine That there was our 
Is It a Crime and Should Anyone Do Time theme song created by none other than Dan Smots of Goulash Media. Thank you, Dan. So for for this next case, I, I want to play that game. So if you could tell me afterwards when, when I describe it, if you think that this individual actually committed a crime and if, if they should have done any time. And I'm talking about Martha Stewart. This is a case that everyone thinks they know about. They think they know what happened. They think she was convicted of insider trading. And that's really not what happened. So at the end of the day, uh, what, what did Martha Stewart get convicted for? And did she even commit a crime in anything she was doing? Right. Well, of course, remember, here's another very high profile individual. And what happened was she's um, on a trip. And she gets a call from her broker telling her that the chief executive officer, a major shareholder of a company in which she had a rather modest investment, had just made a call to Merrill Lynch, where the broker worked, ordering that all of his and his family shares be sold immediately. The broker, not knowing what the inside information was, what news prompted the chief shareholder and CEO of the company to dump his stock, figured obviously there's something wrong with the company and it hasn't been announced yet. And he calls Martha Stewart and says, I suggest you sell your stock. And she says, okay, we don't know the reason, but if it's being sold by the guy who runs the company and I'm going to sell mine and her stock was sold and she was investigated and the broker was investigated and they were both charged. Now they were not charged with insider trading, even though the news reports were all, you know, uh, saying she was charged with insider trading. Apparently nobody actually read the indictment, but the government couldn't charge her with insider trading because it was not insider trading. Neither she nor her broker who was indicted with her knew what the inside information was. All they knew was that this other guy was selling, who happens to be the CEO, was selling his stock. That is not a crime. It might have been a crime for the CEO to sell his stock because he knew the inside information as to what, what had happened that caused them to sell. But Martha Stewart, the broker, didn't know. So how come they were indicted? Well, this is an old government trick. I hope your listeners are listening carefully because it could happen to any of us. The SEC and the Department of Justice started an investigation. And they asked Martha Stewart and the broker to come in and answer questions under oath. And um, the um, uh, Martha Stewart and the broker being very nervous about this, instead of telling the truth, which by the way would have exonerated both of them, they concocted a false story as to why Martha Stewart sold her stock. The full story was that they had, she had agreed with her broker a long time ago when she bought the stock that if it fell to a certain level, she was going to sell. Or if it rose to a certain level, she was going to sell. In other words, there were trigger points agreed between her and her broker. 
and that the stock hit the trigger point and the broker called her up, told her it hit the trigger point and she ordered the sale of her shares. This was a false story and the government was able to prove it was a false story and they were indicted for telling a false story. Now here's the reason this was possible, this prosecution was possible. There is a federal statute, believe it or not, that makes it a felony not only to lie under oath when you're being questioned by the feds, but to lie even not under oath. So if an agent comes to you and starts asking you questions or calls you in and starts asking you questions and you're not under oath and you tell a lie, you have committed a felony that can expose you to a five-year prison sentence. This is the infamous so-called federal false statement statutes that is responsible for the filling up of quite a few prisons just in itself. And this is why I always say anytime I have the opportunity to reach people, to tell them, keep your mouth shut. They said to me, but it looks bad if I don't answer questions. I tell them it's going to be worse if you do, because these are not honest people asking you these questions. They're looking to trap you. They are not looking to learn information. And, um, and that's what happened to Martha Stewart. She got trapped. There was even, get this, the original indictment that she went to trial on not only charged her with a false statement made to the agents on which she was convicted, but there was another charge that the judge, even the judge, uh, couldn't stomach and threw it out before it got to the jury. And here's the charge. When she was indicted, when... <clears throat> when, when it, the, the government first disclosed that she was the subject um, of an investigation, she had a statement read by the PR person for her company, uh, you know, the famous Martha Stewart um, Omnimedia uh, company. Uh, it was New York's, I don't know if it was New York Stock Exchange, but it was, uh, it was a well-known uh, listed investment uh, security. Um she had a statement issued um, that, you know, indicated that uh, she had not committed a crime, that she and she, she told her this, this false story. Uh, and um, that was issued by her PR people. And the government in, included that in the indictment on the ground that this was delivering false information to investors, that her denial of guilt constituted a securities violation because it was delivering false information to investors in her company's stock. The judge realized that this was a, a, a theory so subject to prosecutorial abuse that the judge ditched it and left only uh, for the jury the false statements to the uh, SEC investigators and prosecutors. But Martha Stewart was really tricked into into uh, into making a false statement in a case where she was not guilty of what everybody thought was the crime involved, and that is insider trading. She did not commit insider trading. 
I'm assuming she wasn't acting on the advice of a of an attorney to make up a story that had to be something concocted just between yes. her and her broker, right? I mean, no attorney would advise yep. something what, like that. What she should have done was consulted counsel immediately and uh, maybe consult a couple of lawyers, get a consensus view, uh, and and act accordingly. Um, she uh, she really, uh, as they say, jackpotted herself. But you know, it's very easy to do because these statutes. Uh, an ordinary person would have assumed that, well, yeah, she must have acted on inside information. She learned that this insider had been selling his stock. And yet, since she didn't know the information itself that caused the insider to sell, she was not guilty under the insider trading laws. But she didn't know that, and her broker didn't know that. That's really interesting. It's, I think I learned something there. Um, it's not only just knowing of an event that happened. If you don't know the reason why it happened or underlying insider information, then it's not insider trading. Uh, unfortunately, Harvey, we are, we're out of time here today, but I do want to give you the opportunity to let all my listeners know what you're working on now, anything you want to plug, where they can follow you on social media or, or find, your, uh, find your website. And of course, I'll link to link to your book, Three Felonies a Day. I'll link to that on the show notes page. So people well, can you'll buy be it. interested to know that I'm working on, in addition to my, you know, my, my cases, I'm still practicing law. Uh, the government is still doing what it's doing and I'm doing what I'm doing. Uh, I, uh, I am working on a, a sequel to Three Felonies a Day. The tentative title is Conviction Machine. And in Conviction Machine, I'm making recommendations for legislation and court doctrines that could uh, reduce, if not eliminate in some instances, the chances of an innocent person being convicted of a federal crime. In other words, the problems highlighted in three felonies a day, I'm hoping I can recommend solutions uh, in conviction machines, solutions that might actually be adopted by Congress or might be adopted by the federal judiciary. And the reason I'm doing that book is because my publisher said, you know, Harvey, you've done a great job in outlining how easy it is for innocent people to get convicted in federal court. But how about making a few suggestions for solutions to these problems and uh, for uh, advances in the law that will prevent the innocent from being convicted. And I rose to the challenge and I'm, I'm writing the book. It's about 25% done. Um, I'm hoping sometime next year uh, it will come out. Well, that's a great idea for a book and definitely something that is necessary and I look forward to when it comes out, hopefully getting to have you back on the show to talk about it. So I want to thank you once again. This is a real honor speaking with you. Thank you so much for coming and spending some time with the Felony Friday audience. Right. Oh, it's really my pleasure and my honor. All righty. Thank you. Hope you all enjoyed today's episode, my interview with the great Harvey Silverglate. And since this episode ran just a little bit longer than normal, I'm going to refrain from your typical post-show rant that you would hear from me. And also, you'll probably notice that I refrain from putting in a commercial in the middle there. I wanted you guys to get an uninterrupted interview with Harvey today, and I think it came off really well. I really enjoyed talking with him, and I hope you guys enjoyed listening to him. 
I do have a few quick favors to ask you guys. If you're still listening here, if you love this episode, please share this show. Share it with your friends. Share it with your family. Share it with strangers. Share it with... And second, please go to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating and review. Even if you don't use iTunes to listen, please consider doing this. It helps us tremendously with their ranking system. And like it or not, iTunes is the number one podcast listening app out there. And where we rank in their system there... Helps us a lot. Helps us to reach a wider audience. So we really would appreciate you doing that. And also, just one more time, I want to encourage everyone to check out Harvey's book. You can find a link to purchase it on the show notes page at www.lionsofliberty.com FF66. If you purchase through that link, that's our Amazon link. A little bit of that money will come back to the show at no cost to you. So we really do appreciate that. And also, while you're surfing around on the interwebs, reading the show notes page, please check out the Lions of Liberty store. You can find that at lionsofliberty.store. And you can check out our t-shirts. We have three different designs. We also have some beer koozies. So check that out if you haven't yet and buy some stuff to support the show. And also, if you're a longtime listener of this show, this doesn't really apply to new listeners. I don't want to pressure any new listeners who just found this show into becoming members of the Lion's Pride, unless you really want to. But, you know, if you've listened to the show for a while and you want a little bit more, if you want more content, I really want to encourage you guys to check out and consider joining the Lion's Pride. Pride. And we do roll out a lot of exclusive content just to our Lions Pride members. There's extra interview questions that are that are given. I know Tom Woods did some extra interview questions just for our Lions Pride. We did a conspiracy roundtable. We actually released some interviews early. The Judd Weiss interview that is actually going to release this upcoming Monday, our Lions Pride group has had it. They've listened to it last week. They've had it for a week. So that's definitely a huge perk right there. And you can get access to all that stuff for as little as $5 per month. Of course, you can donate a little bit more and get more freebies, more goodies, five, 10, 25 a month, whatever you want to give. We very much appreciate that. That's all I have for the show today, guys. I really appreciate everyone listening. This is John Odermatt signing off. Always remember to keep your head up and the fires of liberty burning.